The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Well, today is a very important uh, show. Uh, I'm calling it Alan West's Wake Up Call. And this country certainly needs a lot of waking up, as those of you who have been listening to me before know that I say. Uh, we are asleep. We are in denial. This country is going down the tubes. And my guest today um, is, has certainly been proclaiming the same message um, louder and stronger. And um, we need, but somehow, somehow the country keeps going on the way it is down the tubes. Uh, I first came into contact with my guest uh, and his his political beliefs um, by watching a uh, a speech he gave in Manhattan not that long ago. Uh, it was a wake up call, and um, the people. <laughs> Uh, in the audience, we're certainly rooting and cheering and, and agreeing and all that. And it just boggles my mind how even though there are more and more people who are waking up, this country is still going in the direction that it's going. And I am sure it is even more frustrating to my guest, who I'd like to welcome to the show, Alan West. Thank you so much for being on Dr. Carroll's Couch. And Dr. Carroll, it's a pleasure to be with you. Well, um <laughs> I don't know where, where, there are so many things, uh, I mean, you say that this is a time of danger and division, and um, that is certainly true. I want to start, before we get into some of, the, some of your favorite uh, pet peeves, <laughs> um, in terms of what is, what is, what are the problems, the biggest problems this country is facing, I want to talk about, um, I want to ask you about the title of your new book. The book is called Guardian of the Republic, An American Ronin's Journey to Faith, Family, and Freedom. Now, um, well, first of all, I want to say that if you look up, uh, to my listeners, I'm talking, um, if you look up Patriot in the dictionary, you will find a picture of Alan West. He certainly has uh, walked his talk he has had a 22-year career in the United States Army. He's a retired U.S. Army lieutenant colonel. He has also um, been elected to Congress. He took the oath of office in 2011. He's the first African-American Republican congressman from Florida since 1876. And um, we'll talk about your current uh, title as well. But let, let me, I, I found your, the subtitle, An American Ronin's Journey to Faith, Family, and Freedom, particularly interesting. Now, I, was, I, had to, I have to admit, I looked up Ronin, and I came up with um, definitions like it was the name of a samurai warrior who was beholden to no leader. 
It's also, um, and another definition is wanderer. So how did you pick that? How do you, obviously that's something, some way that you see yourself, and why don't we start with that? Well, the the simplest definition for Ronan is the masterless samurai, and so when I you know think about the fact that I lost my father early in my life back in uh, 1986, I was only 25, and uh, he got to see me commissioned as a second lieutenant, but never saw another one of my promotions. He passed away, and the thing is that the Ronan continues to uphold the principles and beliefs of that uh, master that he once had, even though he has passed on, uh, and he continues to you know. His sword is in service to those principles. His sword is in service to the people, not just that master. And so that's what I see my life as being. And when you think about, you know, my father who, you know, born in 1920 down in South Alabama, grew up in South Georgia, you know, World War II veteran, you know, it was the, the, the lessons and the way that he mentored me, which enables me to be the person I am today. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting. Another way of looking at that, um, <laughs> since I've read so much of, you know, uh, so much of your critique of Obama, and uh, you know, I I share that, and I have shared that on this show many times. Um, my own critiques. Um, I, I thought perhaps it had it was a double entendre, um, a a masterless samurai, although not not following, not continuing the teachings, but actually like this country is, um, you know, who's running the sh- the store? This country is without a master. Well, the the thing is, the strength of the United States of America is in each and every one of us, and that's why we have to, I think the greatest thing that we are confronting right now is us understanding what it means to live in a republic, understanding what it means to live and respect the rule of law and individual sovereignty. And if we could solve those two issues, if we could truly have that awakening among the American people, uh, then you would not see these people that come along and pour the honey in the ears and, you know, say things to us that are really contrary to the fundamental principles and values. I think about how back in 2008 when President Obama stood up there running for office and said, we're five days away from fundamentally transforming America. Mm. And there were people that actually clapped, they cheered. And that is, for me, the the biggest threat is that someone can say that and no mm. one challenge it. Because, mm. you know, I grew up down south. If someone were to stand up and say, we're five days away from fundamentally trans, uh, transforming SEC college football, <laughs> the world would stop. <laughs> Okay, uh-huh. but when someone makes a statement like that about your country and and we don't challenge it, so I think that the the biggest ch- you know challenge or awakening has to happen with the American people. Uh, I don't blame the politicians for continuing to do what they are getting away with because we're rewarding this bad behavior. Well, um, you know, I have said, and this may be a little too. Um, uh, I, uh, this may be a little too strong for you, but I have gone to the point of calling uh, Obama a domestic terrorist. I think his sympathies have been from the sh- get-go to make America more vulnerable to terrorists. Well, one of the things that I have to admit is if you cannot say who the enemy is, if you're more so concerned about focusing the the strength and power of government against your political opposition and framing them as extremists than you are the true Islamic terrorists. When I uh, remember listening to uh, Jay John 
the Secretary of Homeland Defense recently out at the Aspen Institute and said this has came after the Chattanooga shooting that you can't say Islamic and terrorists in the same mm. phrase or line or sentence because you'll be offending people. Uh, when you have those type of policies, when you look at what John Kerry has said about the recent uh, actions that are occurring, the terrorist attacks that are occurring in uh, in Israel, in Jerusalem, Beersheba, what have you, and for us to make this moral equivalency statement, you know, the the spokesperson of the, the uh, State Department, John mm-hmm. Kirby, standing up and saying that both sides are guilty of terrorism. That's insidious to me. Yes, yes, um, yes. And to say that uh, they're random acts of terrorism, you know, it's... it's uh, no, ran- <laughs> no, random acts of violence. They didn't even call it violence. terrorism. Right, right, right. Yeah. Right, they don't call it terrorism, right. Um, yes, I-, I know, that's very scary. If, you're, if the Secretary of State is saying that, and obviously uh, the President is agreeing with him, um, you know, that is yet another... Um, Example or red flag of all of these, all the things that are going wrong. Well, let's. Let, I want to. I don't want to. Leave, I don't want to. Um, I want to go back to what you said at the beginning. I don't want to lose that. How do you think this? I mean, that is the biggest challenge. How do you think that this country should um, or can get back to its roots and and recognize um, that it's a republic, that it's a democracy, that you know, reclaim itself, basically. We we need to have people that tell those stories. Uh, you know, September the 17th, 1787, you know, after the Constitution was signed in, in Philadelphia, Benjamin Franklin came out of the Independence Hall. He was met by Mrs. Powell, and she asked him, well, doctor, what is it that we have, a, a republic or a monarchy? And mm-hmm. Franklin said, it's a republic if you can keep it. And somewhere along the line, in these past 230-some-odd years, or the years since the signing of the Constitution, we stopped talking about it. We stopped teaching it. We stopped telling our children and our grandchildren about what it means to live in a republic. We stopped teaching civics so that people don't understand the three branches of government and what their duties and responsibilities and enumerated powers are. So now we have people that come along, uh, and and we were never supposed to have a political elite class. We were supposed to have citizen legislators who would go and do the business of legislating this great nation, and recess meant that they came back home and went back to work as a doctor, lawyer, a merchantman, farmer, soldier, what have you. Uh, We've gotten so far off track because we now have people that understand they are telling American people what they think they want to hear. Leadership is about telling people what they need to hear. Uh, no matter how tough it may be, because they have to know that you are concerned and you care about their future. Yes, absolutely. I mean, how much do you think the media is to blame for um, not telling these, you know, bringing back the stories, I mean, reminding people of what America was founded upon? Well, I think it starts in the home. I know that a lot of people saying it's the teacher's responsibility. I spent a year teaching high school uh, down in South Florida. It's such an enjoyable experience. I volunteered to go back to Afghanistan. So I think it has to start in the home with the parents that are telling these stories about opportunity and not about dependency. I think it starts in the home where parents are taking that responsibility to sit down with their children. One of the things that my parents did with me growing up in Atlanta, I had to, you know, go through the Atlanta Journal Constitution. I had to find one story, and I had to basically give them a summary of that story at the dinner table. We need to have conversations again, not to, you know, send text messages to each other. Although, you know, if you're separated, uh, you know, like today, my daughter, you know, youngest daughter was sending us, you know, some updates about what was going on in school. 
but still you want that, them to have that conversation over the dinner table. Well, you know, that's one of the basic problems. Today, so many American families don't have uh, dinners together. For starters, you know, everybody's running out to different things, and um, they don't even sit down and, and talk with each other. No, that's true, and and unfortunately, you know, you have the kids that uh, I think they call them the latchkey kids. Right. It does not matter. You have to find that time in the day. If it's just twenty, thirty minutes, whatever. Parents, we have to talk to our kids and and let them know, you know, what's on your mind. You know, start looking at some of the things that are happening. Share them the the anecdotal stories of your day. Teach, coach, and mentor them, because that's the most important relationship. And unfortunately, what I have seen happen in the 50 years since the Great Society programs of Lyndon Johnson, we've seen the traditional American family be under assault and it's been uh, taken apart. Yeah. And then we ask ourselves, why do we see the deplorable situations, especially in our inner cities? Yes, yes. I mean, you know, um, so many families, I mean, you know, one of the things, I don't know if you've noticed this, but for example, one of the things that I've been harping on is um, how when you look at the school shooters, you know, there are certain things in their background, certain patterns, and one of the things in this pattern is divorce. And, um, you know, so many people, their lives have, have turned, have changed. Um, so many children have, once their parents get divorced and they have, are kind of left on their own, um, and then they start playing violent video games, <laughs> um, you know, things go downhill. No, you're right. And, and that's one of the things that, you know, I remember traveling down south to see the grandparents with my dad. And, and guess what? We talked. But now you have the folks where you can put the, the movies on in the, uh, in the car and the kids, you know, get latched on into the movie or they sit back there and they, you know, strengthen their thumbs. You know, again, we need to have that interaction whenever you have those opportunities the family to sit down. Sunday Sunday dinners, you know, that's one of the most important things, and that has to almost become a sacred time for the restoration of the American family. Yes, and I, I know, I'm sure that that's part of that's what you were hoping to uh, to get across to people in your book, The Guardian mm-hmm. of the Republic. Um, I know, it's... Uh, I mean, we can't we can't think that things have gone too far. I mean, it would be... I mean, we can't have a negative attitude and think that uh, there's no coming, turning back, but it is a struggle to get people to turn back uh, to where, you know, to not sit, even if they sit at the dinner table, how do they not look at their, at their phones when, when that little beep goes, you know? You got to put it down. You got to put it down. When you go out, you got you to put it down. You know, when you go out to you know, events as a family, you know, sporting events, fairs, whatever, you got to put it down. You know, there there are some times I know you got to, you know, maybe you're a doctor and you're on call or something like that, or you're a soldier and you're on call, soldier, sailor, airman, marine, coast guardsman. I understand those situations, but I think it's so important for our children to know is that we are dedicating that time to them. We we are saying this is sacrosanct, yeah. uh, and, yeah. and 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 I remember the times, you know, with my little girls growing up. They're now 22 and 18. You know, when I took them out and taught them how to ride a bicycle, and it wasn't about, you know, okay, we only got X amount of time, you know, you mm. carve out the time and mm-hmm. you spend it with them or, you know, you you take them out to do things and, and you know, learn how to swim. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm one of those kind of guys. I took my daughters to learn how to, to shoot because I'm raising young women and I'm not raising victims. So it's those type of 
things that, especially fathers with daughters, hmm. is so important. Yeah. Now, that's but, interesting. But uh, I, I think all parents should try to carve out time. Yes. So you taught your daughters to shoot. Yeah, as a matter of fact, if you go to my Facebook page, you will see uh, some really fun pictures of my girls just recently. Uh, one was shooting my uh, M4 AR-15, another one was shooting an AK-47 pistol and also a, a 50 caliber Barrett uh, rifle. Hmm. You've, I'm sure you've taken a lot of criticism for that. I don't give a daggum what people say. <laughs> I mean, those are my daughters, and, and I don't want them to be afraid of anything, and I want them to understand that, you know, their first, their their Second Amendment right is very yeah. important, and it's the right to self-defense and protecting themselves. Well, you know, it's funny. I had sort of a different attitude towards that until um, I started really recognizing just how dangerous um, it could be for the government, you know, for uh, for people, for the government to disarm uh, the public, you know, the, the idea that we should just trust that the president and vice president are looking out for us and that there would never come a time in America when we would need to protect ourselves. I'm not talking about, you know, the break-ins or thieves or things like that, um, but, you know, uh, the idea that, in fact, there may be a t- come a time when we need to stand up for our rights. No, well, I think you do have to stand up for the rights, and I think we should be very concerned when you someone like Hillary Clinton stand there and say that we should you know, start talking about those two words that should send a chill down. It's about gun confiscation. Because yeah. uh, I saw some pictures of, you know, dumpsters of, of you know, weapons in Australia that were taken away from people. You, you can't do that. I mean, we, we want the American, we have to trust the American people. You know, focus on the criminal element that is out there. Focus on the mental health issue that is out there. But don't look at honest, everyday, uh, law-abiding American citizens and say that, you know, for the sake of my political advantage uh, and, and pacifying, you know, my, my uh, electorate, this is what we're going to do. You, which violates, you know, a long-standing right that the American people yeah. has ever had. You know, it's so interesting, Dr. Carroll, in that the recent Supreme Court ruling about, you know, same-sex marriage, first of all, five people don't make law in the United States of America. Only mm. the, the Congress makes law, and it goes to the president. So they're supposed to interpret law and not make it. But how is it that all of a sudden the federal government, through, by way of the judicial branch, can create a right for people? based upon yes. an individual behavioral choice and then use the uh, equal protection under the law uh, clause of the 14th Amendment to say that all the states and, and everyone has to comply with that. Well, then why is it that we have states and municipalities that do not comply with the Second Amendment? Yes, yes. Um, well, and not to mention um, the, uh, uh, what do you call it, this, this, the um, sanctuary cities that don't comply with... Yes. absolutely. With, and so that's a, part, that's a part of understanding what it means to live in a republic, understanding what it means to have the rule of law and how it should be appropriately interpreted. Not people who come down and all of a sudden believe that it is not about a pursuit of happiness, it's about them trying to guarantee happiness. And that's where we have gotten so far off the rails. What do you mean? Could you expand upon that? 
Well, you have the inalienable rights that are endowed to you as an individual in the United States of America as per the Declaration of Independence. It comes right. from the Creator and not, does not come from man because if man can grant your rights, he can also take away your rights. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, originally it was, came from uh, John Locke, who was the great English political philosopher of life, liberty, and property. Thomas Jefferson reworded it to be life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So that means that we have the opportunity to pursue our happiness. But what you see occurring now and what you saw last Tuesday night at the Democratic uh, presidential debate is people that believe that they can guarantee your happiness. And how do they do that? Mm. Everything becomes a right. You have a, a right to health care. You have a right to mm. free education to go to college. You have a right to family and medical leave. And that is the honey that people pour into folks' ears. Yes. But that is so far away from who we are fundamentally. Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, and then, of course, that goes right into uh, the immigration issue, which, uh, and I, you know, that letting people in who would tend to vote for those kinds of, that kind of honey. That's correct. You know, as a matter of fact, uh, Alexis de Tocqueville said in uh, the book Democracy in America, written back in the, like the 1830s, uh, I think, you know, there's some debate whether he got it from a, a previous Scottish uh, gentleman, but he said that democracy cannot exist as a permanent form of government. It can only exist until that time when the electorate realizes they can vote their own largesse from the public treasury. From that moment on, voters will always vote for the person promising them the most benefits, with the ensuing result being the collapse of a democracy over loose fiscal policy followed by a dictatorship. And that's exactly what we see happening hmm. today. Yes, yes, absolutely. You also say, and I, I, I totally agree with this, um, about how the, the um, immigrants, the refugees flooding Europe are a Trojan horse. Why don't you get into that? I mean, I've been, I've been talking about that and trying to warn people about that. And I actually went to medical school in Belgium, and mm-hmm. I also lived in France, in Paris, uh, so I, and I've traveled all around Europe, and I, you know, spent a lot of time there. And so I have seen over as I've gone back over the years, I have seen gradually the change, um, even before this current uh, wave of immigrants. And each country is losing their 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 national characteristics, and and uh, is being flooded by people looking for that honey. It's it's the ruination of Europe. Yeah, it is. And the interesting thing is that as you look at so many of these these pictures uh, of the refugees coming, I see a whole lot of military-aged males. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm a very compassionate guy, and I understand you know, the elderly, the women, and the children getting them out of combat zones, but the military-aged males need to be back there fighting for their countries, not going to other countries mm-hmm. to cause mm-hmm. disruption and seek to live off the largesse of the, uh, of the host state. And you're already seeing some you know, very interesting riots and, and things occur in some of these areas that... Uh, is contrary to the, the the rule of law and contrary to uh, civil society. So I think we have to be very careful about just saying we're going to, you know, bring everybody in, hundreds of thousands. Uh, and I find it very funny that Saudi Arabia, with the the, the, the vast resources and richness that they have, uh, they would not take any of these, uh, you know, refugees. And they're Sunni, most of them. But they would turn around and say, we're happy to build, you know, 200 to 250 mosques all across Europe to accommodate them. (laughs) Yes, yes. (laughs) I mean, you know, I I, I keep thinking that um, someday in the future, 
kids reading, high school kids, or even elementary school kids, reading their history books, assuming that there are going to be history books. <laughs> well, you know, of course, the retelling of history. But if, they were, if there were accurate history books, um, you know, and, and students would be reading these, I think they would be scratching their heads about all the things that were so obvious, should have been so obvious to us, and yet our society just let these things go by, you know, didn't, didn't react to them. No, I, I think it is very incredible that we're allowing that to happen. And there's so much that is going on with our textbooks, with our curriculum yes. that we need to the get core, you know, again. The, the, what was it? Um, common Core. Yes. And, and we're getting to the point where we're teaching revisionist history. Right. And if, if that is what is occurring, then what you are doing is you are manipulating the past uh, in order to uh, provide some type of advantage for you in the present and definitely jade the, uh, the future. And that's what we see happening today. And I know another um, point that you feel really strongly about, and I do as well, I couldn't, this is another example of, of students are going to be reading this and they're going to be scratching their heads and thinking, what? Um, you know, how did this happen? That on 9-11 in 2001, and then 9-11 in 2012, Benghazi. Um, in 9-11, on 9-11, in 2015, our nation um, essentially passed the Iranian nuclear resolution. Um, yes. I, I well, mean, actually, I mean, we didn't even vote on it. Do- Dr. Carroll, we didn't even vote on it. Yes. I, yes. I mean, you, you know, you have 42 Senate Democrats that blocked it from even coming to the floor. And, and again, what a great way to teach civics. First of all, it should have been treated as a treaty, which means that the president would have had to, got, had to achieve two-thirds of uh, approval in the Senate. But for whatever reason, the, uh, the Senate, through uh, Mr. Corker, who is the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, decided it wouldn't be treated so. So, again, let's adhere to the rule of law, our Constitution. They did not do it. So then the onus becomes on the House and the Senate to get the two-thirds uh, necessary for a uh, resolution of disapproval. And so now then you get the point where through the filibuster rule, which was something that has been changed back and forth. I mean, Harry Reid got rid of it and made it a simple majority. Mitch McConnell reinstates it. And so then 42 Senate Democrats are able to even block this. One of the most important, you know, treaties, one of the most important agreements and documents was blocked from even being, you know, uh, uh, voted on in the, on the Senate floor. So this thing is going to come into being by a fait accompli. And I thought I heard um, the other day that they, that they have al- that Iran has already broken it. Is that true? Oh yes, oh, yes, they have. I mean, uh, within uh, last week. They fired off a, uh, a ballistic missile system, which which they have already broken the UN weapons uh, treaty ban on uh, ballistic missiles as well as conventional weapons because they've been selling and and buying weapons anyhow. Uh, the fact that you had the head of the coups force, General Kasim Soleimani, who is supposed to be on an international travel ban, he has traveled to Russia and met with their defense minister and also with the um, uh, Vladimir Putin. And then of course you had the video where they showed us their underground missile bases. So why would we even trust Iran? Why would we even trust a 
a, a country that has been at war with the United States of America since 1979. Back then, they had 52 hostages. They still have four. 1983... Uh, 234 Marines, sailors, and soldiers were killed in the Beirut bombings uh, by Hezbollah, who is a proxy army of Iran. Where is Hezbollah today? They're fighting in Syria alongside the Iranian coups force under the protection of Russian aircraft. So, And we know that the explosive force penetrators, these very lethal IEDs, were developed in Iran, and they are responsible for about 30% of the deaths of our men and women in Iraq. So why would the President of the United States of America go into an agreement with a country like that? And furthermore, why would the President of the United States of America, uh, you know, intimidate and, and cajole Democrats to block it from even being voted on? Well, yes, that's, that goes back to what I was saying earlier. I mean, so much of what he's done has been in the direction of making us more vulnerable to terrorists. Um, we need to take a break right now. I do hope that you will uh, stay on because I wanted to uh, wanted to go further with all of this. Um, my guest sure. is retired Colonel Alan West. Um, he is uh, currently the president and CEO of the National Center for Policy Analysis, and we'll talk about what that organization does when we get back as well. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Uh, With me is Lieutenant Colonel um, Alan West. We are having um, a wake-up call by Mr. West. Um, And God knows this country needs to be awakened um, before the break, we were talking about the Iranian nuclear treaty. You know, they have been going um, in the same direction for years. It's not like this is a surprise, and yet, and our sanctions haven't been working. And instead of making harder, harsher sanctions, we got into this treaty that really gives them carte blanche. Um, what do you think about the fact that Russia has now moved into um, into the area? Uh, with this, you know, with this 
supposed plan or reason for being there, but um, really being, really getting a little too close to Iran for comfort. Well, you know, it's one of the laws of physics that nature abhors a void. A void was left uh, due to President Obama's focus on a campaign promise and rigid ideology instead of the strategic reality on the ground. And so we withdrew our, our combat forces from uh, Iraq. And, you know, we're we're in, in very dangerous seeing the same thing happen in Afghanistan because you just don't say we're ending combat operations unilaterally. There are only two ways you end a combat operation. You win or you lose. You just don't walk away and leave mm-hmm. the enemy on the battlefield. So you see Vladimir Putin, former KGB, he's very adept and very skilled, and he is filling that void. And he understands that he has uh, a president of the United States of America, as, such as Vlad, uh, Barack Obama, who, of course, you know, chided Mitt Romney during the last, debate during the 2012 election cycle about the the 80s needed his foreign policy back when he said that Russia was our greatest geopolitical threat. We know about the off-mic moment of uh, President Obama with then-Russian President Medvedev when he told him that, uh, tell Vladimir, after my re-election, I have more flexibility. Now we Mm. know what flexibility means. Mm. Flexibility means Russia is in the Crimea. They are in the eastern part of Ukraine. They are reestablishing their military bases in the Arctic Circle, and they have uh, deployed their forces into uh, into Syria. And not just the Russians are there. Uh, the reports came out last week that you now have uh, Cuban Special Operations Forces there as well. And, you know, we were supposed to have normalized diplomatic relations with them. So you're seeing something you hadn't seen since the uh, the early 70s in Angola when you had Cuban forces deployed uh, with Russian support uh, to, to those African areas, Af- Central African nations. So this is what yes, happens when you... I was just going to bring up Cuba that, um, you know, at this particular, that's another thing that Obama did to reopen relations. I mean, really, if you were, if you looked at everything that he did, and so much by executive order, as you were uh, talking about before, you know, I mean, how does it seem anything other than someone who is really trying to bring down America? Well, he said he was going to fundamentally transform the country, and that's exactly what he's doing. And the sad thing is, is again, going back to what we initially talked about, understanding the rule of law, you have a legislative branch that doesn't understand its enumerated powers, and they're not legislating. They're allowing the executive branch to do it all by executive order and bureaucratic fiat. Uh, they're allowing the uh, judicial branch to do it you know, by uh, their judicial activism. And so that's why we see a topsy-turvy country and, you know, people like Russia, Iran, China, uh, North Korea, they're, and the uh, various Islamic uh, jihadist groups, they're taking advantage of this. We have an administration that seeks to avoid confrontation and escalation uh, unless it's against their political opposition. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about that. Now, I've been reading that there have been various people... Um, uh, such as Fox News uh, anchors and very numerous people who have um, suggested, <laughs> recommended, wanted to support you um, for president, for vice president, for speaker of the House, even after you were out of Congress. Um, what? Uh, why? <laughs> why aren't you running for president? I guess is my question. 
Well, you know, first of all, I don't think that that's something that, you know, God laid upon my heart to do right now. I'm happy to be the president and CEO of the National Center for Policy Analysis out here in Dallas, Texas. And uh, if something like that is meant to be in my future, uh, it will be determined. Uh-huh. Well, tell us what the National Center for Policy Analysis does. We are a 32-year-old conservative free market think tank, like I said, located in Dallas, Texas. Uh, if you have a health savings account, you can thank the National Center for Policy Analysis. If you are automatically enrolled in a 501K by your employer, you can thank the National Center for Policy Analysis. Uh, there are many other things that NCPA has done through its policy work in tax, entitlement, health care, education, energy, and national security. Now that I'm here, we can e- extend uh, more so into that. And what we do is we try to develop those you know, private, free market, free uh, enterprise uh, solutions to the uh, public policy situations that we see here. And you can visit us at www.ncpa.org and follow us in the work that we're doing, and we'd love to have your support. Yes, it's a nonprofit, nonpartisan uh Organizations, so um, so just I wanted to get that in so people know that it's um, well, I, you know, I presumably, I mean, I guess uh, you're the work that you can do as the president CEO of this organization. You probably are able to get a lot more accomplished without uh, more quickly than um, you know than in in some other political offices. Well, I do a lot of traveling, and it's great to be out with the American people. I did two trips uh, back and forth to Boston. Uh, one, I spoke at a Jewish synagogue, an event down there, Citizen Patriot Award in uh, Stoughton, Massachusetts. And I was uh, Friday night, I was in uh, Newton, Massachusetts, for the Massachusetts Family Institute. Then I flew out to Montana, to ha- Hamilton, Montana, Ravalli County, to speak to the GOP there, and then last night I was in Knoxville, Tennessee, speaking to the Young America's Foundation about uh, national security and uh, forced posture and forced development. Well, that's that, that's fabulous. I mean, that is that, I guess that answers my, one of my question, one of my earliest questions about you know how do we get the uh, country to to wake up and get back to these values of recognizing it needs to be a republic or it needs to fight for still being a republic. Um, I, you know, and that actually reminded me when you were mentioning um, some of the awards. I wanted to mention that um, Mr. West also received uh, so many awards. I don't want to, including the Bronze Star, the Meritorious Service Medal, um, Army Commendation Medal, Army Achievement Medal, all kinds of medals, um, as well as as and putting his life in danger in in for for those 22 years. Um, I wanted to ask you also uh, about the, the president. I mean, I have to ask you about the presidential election. I don't know how, what you feel comfortable talking about in regard to that. Are there candidates or a candidate or candidates who you have put your support behind so far, or are you waiting to see or? Where do, where do you well, stand on Well, uh, you that? know, you, I'm still in a wait-out mode. I think it's still very early in the process. We have another debate coming up uh, next week, I believe, on the 28th, uh, hosted by CNBC. I guess they'll talk more about the economy. Uh, there, there are some people that, you know, definitely have my eye and have my attention. I've been pretty impressed with uh, Ms. Carly Fiorina and, and what she's been able to do during the debates and how she is a, a clear uh, an articulate voice and is a problem solver in you know the small amount of time that you get during a debate, but uh, I, I think that uh, you know by 
the middle of November, definitely before Thanksgiving, you'll probably see another six to seven people drop out on the on the uh, Republican side because you just don't have that that many resources out there. And if you cannot have the resources to pay staff, you're not going to be able to run for president. We saw uh, Jim Webb, former senator from Virginia, uh, drop out of the Democrat uh, contention, and there's still talk about Biden within the next 48 hours getting in for the Democrats. So we have not seen the field solidify. So I think by, you know, the beginning of the year, next year, uh, I think that you'll see six to seven on the Republican side that are in the hunt and probably just down to three on the Democrat side. Well, I'm sure you've um, heard, this is just a recent thing, um, but I'm sure, I'm sure you keep up with all of it. So um, you heard that uh, Trump was asked um, how he would feel about a Trump Ben Carson ticket, and he said stranger things have happened. Um, uh, what do you think about that combination, or what do you think about each of them? Look, this is the most important thing that I say to folks. Uh, the, 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 the critical title of the President of the United States of America is Commander-in-Chief. And when we think about where the world will be in January of 2017, with the advancements that Russia, China, Iran, North Korea are making, the Islamic jihadist groups stemming from Boko Haram, al-Shabaab, uh, the Taliban, al-Qaeda, ISIS, you know, Hamas, Hezbollah, we're going to need someone that can really come in and have a vision for securing the United States of America for future generations and rebuilding our military force capability and capacity. So that's what I, that's the prism that I'm looking through right now. I'm not so much hung up in, you know, this person, that person. I'm looking for uh-huh. a typecast, a mold. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, is there, hmm, is there anyone, I'm trying to think of who would fit that um, in terms of the Republican uh, candidate. Well, that's the question that we have to ask, and we have to have answered. Uh-huh. I mean, it's true, of course. Of course, if the president, um, I mean, yes, that's you know, that's a good point. That is their, uh, that is their important title. I mean, they are a commander in chief. Um, I mean, I guess you know, if someone was wise enough to um, have people under them who can advise them um, well enough, I guess they wouldn't necessarily have to have a military background. Although, yes, I see your point, which. Um, you know, yes, it would be ideal if, I mean, you're right, that is uh, coming down the road, and, and that is an important, those are important uh, qualifications for someone to have. No, it is, and so if there's a, a little bit of a common theme that I see going across the country, folks are tired of seeing the presidency of the United States of America be OJT, on-the-job training, especially when it comes to being a commander-in-chief. So there are many people that think that there should be an amendment to the Constitution that says someone serving as president should have had some uh, time in the military should have some, uh, you know, their, their, their boots uh, on the ground so that they can understand from a strategic perspective what it was like to be down there on the tactical level. Uh, once upon a time, there was no way you could even conceive running for president of the United States of America unless mm-hmm. you had had some time in uniform. Uh, 40 to 45 years ago, a little over 70% of the members of Congress, House and Senate, had served in the United States military. Now we're down to, hmm, I don't know, probably less than 15%. So I think that that has an incredible uh, ramification and consequence for what we see, and the number one responsibility of the federal government is to provide for the common defense. It is not to provide the common welfare. You know, um, 
we need to take another break, but when we come back, I would like to ask you about that, what you th- how you think that that has affected the course of America, the fact that um, less than 15% have been in the military. Um, so we need to take another break, uh, but we will be right back. My guest is Alan West. He um, is, we're, we're talking about a wake-up call, and, certainly, and, and he's certainly giving us words of wisdom to, in that regard. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, here today with Alan West, a, uh, an award-honored uh, um, uh, retired U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel and a member of Congress and um, currently the president and CEO of the National Center for Policy Analysis. Now, before the break, we were talking about, actually, um, Mr. West mentioned, uh, and I didn't know that, I mean, that's a kind of a stunning statistic, less than 15% of Congress has ever served in the military. Did I yeah, hear that right? Uh... Yeah, I mean, if you go and look at uh, the folks that are there now, I don't think that you will find that many of them have been in uniform. And 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 if you were to look at who have really truthfully been on the ground in combat operations in these recent uh, conflagrations in which we've uh, participated in Iraq and Afghanistan, that number drops even lower. Yes, which, of course, then going back to the Iranian uh, nuclear treaty, I, I think it's harder for people to really conceptualize what that means if they haven't been on the front lines or been in the military in some capacity. I, I would like yeah. you to talk about, really, this goes back to what you mentioned at the beginning when I was asking you about um, what an American Ronin's journey to faith, family, and freedom means, what Ronin meant, why you use that word. And you talked about how that... You, you were using it in the sense that um, that's a samurai uh, warrior beholden to no leader, um, a masterless um, 
Samurai Warrior, and that relates to all of the teachings, the wisdom from your father. And so looking at that, um, you had your own experience in the military in which you took a very courageous step, and um, which became very controversial, but follow, it was certainly following the teachings of your father, and, and you don't regret it, and I certainly can see why. I mean, I, don't, I, I certainly um, would agree that that was uh, not only courageous, but it was the right thing to do. So tell us about that. Hey, look, I made a decision to protect my men. I, I used a psychological intimidation tactic to fire my uh, service 9mm pistol over the head of a Iraqi policeman that we had apprehended who uh, we believed, and, and it was confirmed, was leaking some information to Saddam Fedayeen forces about our patrols and our routes and some of our activities. Look, it's very simple. Um, my father and my older brother, my father served as a corporal in World War II. My older brother was a Lance Corporal in the United States Marine Corps. He was wounded at Quezon uh, during Vietnam. Uh, I remember that after I was commissioned as a second lieutenant, before I shoved off to my first duty assignment in Fort Sill, they told me that the most important responsibility for you as a young lieutenant is to take care of your men. And uh, I, I think that that was a very important lesson that they taught me. And I think it's more important for the leader to sacrifice himself than for him to be worried about his own career advancement. So, mm. so that's it. And and I know that there are people on the left that uh, want to castigate me in a negative light. I would much rather have made the decision I have made rather than a Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton who abandoned four Americans to die and then lied about it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. And and I'm sure that ran through your head, you know, that you knew what you were risking, and yet you chose I, to protect I reported your... myself. Yes, T- tell us about that. No, I, I reported myself. I told my commanding officer what I did, and you know, uh, like two or three weeks later, he d- decided to uh, tell my our superiors. And uh, my superior was uh, General Odierno. He was the division commander, former chief of staff of the army. And uh, I will never forget the day that I was sitting there, a member of the House Armed Services Committee, and General Odierno was testifying before the House Armed Services Committee. So guess what? Life has a, a strange way. Mhm. Mhm. Yes. <laughs> certain certain things being true in one era and then um it changing. Well, we're getting close to the end here. Um and to the end of the show. <laughs> we may be getting close to the end in other ways too, but hopefully not. Um we're getting close to the end of the show and I would like to just ask you to um to to just use this time um, to tell us some of the things that you, to, to either reiterate or tell us something that you think is really important to, to emphasize. Well, I just think it's important that we cannot be the first generation of Americans that leaves less to subsequent generations, to our children and grandchildren. That means it's going to have some tough decisions that we're going to have to make, and we have to do that because it is about us not thinking so much about our own self-serving ways, but doing what people have always done. My father and mother sacrificed so that I could be where I am today. Uh, a lieutenant colonel retired from the United States Army who led a battalion in combat, former member of the United States House of Representatives and now the president and CEO of a conservative uh, policy center. Uh, that all came about because they invested in me. Not not the government invested in me, but they did through their hard work and their efforts because they believed that that was the right thing to do. So that is what makes America great, and we must continue to fight for that and restore that. 
Yes, you know, it's true. I think part of the problem is that so many parents are thinking more about what's in it for me or, you know, trying to reclaim their own childhood or, you know, um, just thinking thinking more, either thinking more in terms of, of um, what's in it for me or what, what can I do for me as opposed to, and putting these instilling of these important principles on the back burner. Um, and also, uh, not really, not really recognizing um, the importance of. Uh, I mean, you know, um, spoiling their children or not. You know, it's kind of one extreme or the other. Either children in America today, so many of them are spoiled and have helicopter parents, and on the other extreme, so many of them are latchkey kids or being totally uh, falling through the cracks. And um, and that it, and and teachers these days, as I'm sure you know from having you know done your stint uh, in high school uh, as a high school teacher, um, teachers are having to deal with things so many so many things that parents should be dealing with that it's very hard for them to teach, like ab- childhood abuse, you know, abuse of children, abuse of spouses, um, uh, drugs and alcohol, and and just so many things happening in the family that then fall on the teachers to try to deal with so that they can clear some air, clear some space to actually teach them something. And um, so really it is true that so much has to do with educating the parents to, to uh, on how important their role is. No, it is very important. Uh, and once we can get you know, mothers and fathers back into the home, look, 50 years ago, the two-parent household in the black community was about 77%. Today, it's at 25%. Uh, there are serious uh, ramifications when you break down and destroy that that family unit, and and we see it playing out Baltimore, Chicago, Ferguson, Missouri, Detroit, wherever my old neighborhood in Atlanta. So the the that's why the subtitle of my book is about faith, family, and freedom, because yes. I think that those three are so well intertwined. Yes, and also, um, although I don't have the statistics, I certainly know that also uh, in the in white families, in in families of of other ethnic backgrounds, the breakdown is just overwhelming, and that and children Correct. are falling through the cracks, even when they're spoiled. Yes. You know, even when there's the Disneyland father, for example. Well, I want to make sure I have enough time to give out the websites again. Um, first of all, the uh, National Center for Policy Analysis that Mr. West is the president and CEO of, which is N as in Nancy, C as in Cat, P as in Peter, A as in America, dot org, N-C-P-A dot org. And then Mr. West's website, where you can find all kinds of additional words of wisdom, uh, it's allenbwest.com, Alan B as in Brave, west.com. And, of course, Amazon for the book, um, uh, the Guardian of the Republic, an American Ronin's Journey to Faith, Family, and Freedom. Well, Mr. West, um, this has been uh, this has been as as wise and and uh, uh, important as I thought it would be, and valuable, and um, really a lot for my listeners to think about and chew over, and certainly the certainly to recognize how important uh, families are as the as the core of all of this, uh, becoming, maintaining uh, America as the republic. So thank you so much for being on the show, Mr. Alan West. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Dr. Carroll. 
And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. 